This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a golf course. 70 courses! Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Mount Park. Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Food Stuff. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Annie Reese. And we are your hosts of this, a new show from How Stuff Works. Thank you for joining us. Yes, thank you. Our pilot topic here is going to be champagne, which is so overly ambitious. It was a rather ambitious choice. Uh, we chose it because it's celebratory. This is the first episode. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah cheers. Salud. Cheers. It's so sad to do without a glass, oh. now I'm bummed out. <laughs> we still have a bottle in the fridge that we can... That's true, for work purposes. Yes, completely... Don't read into that. Legitimate work purposes. We have drank a great deal of sparkling wine over the past couple weeks. But, hey, speaking of, wanted to just say at the top of the show, drink responsibly, y'all. And uh, yes. according to the local laws... In the place where you exist. Okay, so while you're responsibly enjoying or not enjoying, if you're not of age, your champagne or sparkling wine, <laughs> what is sparkling wine? What is champagne? What makes the difference? It's kind of like a, like a square rhombus sort of situation, right? Um, champagne is a type of sparkling wine that is produced in the Champagne region of France under very particular circumstances. Um and to to actually take it back a step further than that, like, all right, so what's what's sparkling wine? Does it contain glitter? Ooh, no, it does not. Um, That'd it's, be gross. That would be that would be. <laughs> ooh, no, I would totally drink that edible glitter. Mm. In oh, I'm 
giving away way too much about myself right now. No, uh, a sparkling wine is a wine that is carbonated, meaning that it contains dissolved carbon dioxide gas in it, which bubbles up out of the liquid unless it is kept under kind of tremendous pressure. This is also why you sometimes burp when you drink uh, bubbly or, or soda or beer, because although your stomach is kind of pressurized, it's not pressurized enough to keep carbon dioxide di- dissolved so it escapes as a gas. Not for me. I'm ladylike. Yeah? Never? Yeah. Never? Oh, no, I belch. No, all the time. <laughs> I mean, it's natural. It is. Come on. It's important. Better out than in. <laughs> um, so, so other sparkling wines technically should not be called champagne. I like to pronounce it champagne. Champagne. Is yeah. that the official pronunciation or is that just like what you like saying? I like to say champagne. <laughs> I won't because I'm sure it will get annoying very fast. <laughs> but but you're the, one of the two of us who actually speaks French. so mm, In theory, yes. <laughs> Whether you call it champagne or champagne, uh, in some countries you legally cannot call it that unless it is from that region of France. Um, although technically that's, that's like for, for legal and marketing kind of purposes, not for like table discussion. Yeah. And when I was researching into this, I went down a whole rabbit hole of very interesting trademark and copyright laws because I've never really thought about how difficult it would be to copyright something in so many different countries at once. Yeah. Maybe a different episode. But it is very interesting. And the Champagne region, they take this really seriously. And they should because it's how they make their money. It's what they're known for. To the point in 1910-11, the loss of up to 96% of their crop resulted in something called the Champagne Riots. Champagne Riots? Yeah. That sounds delightful and refreshing in a variety way. It wasn't. Oh. Vineyards were burned, wine barrels were destroyed, and eventually the army had to be called in. It it caused a lot of destruction, (laughs) and it almost resulted in a civil war. Wow. But... But but no civil war, and everyone is back to producing delicious, bubbly beverages these days. And that is all done under the regulation, these very serious regulations, and I'm going to let you say the words since you hypothetically know how to say them better than I do. That's so kind of you. Thank you. Anytime, Annie. Okay, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> Appellation d'origine contrôlée. Huh? Yeah, probably. And also. or AOC. Yes. Which we can say much better oh in our gosh. American. Yes. And we all need so many acronyms in our life. <laughs> and you're going to get a lot more. Just you wait for it. Oh, yeah, yeah. What, one more coming right at you. The, the group that creates these rules is the Institut National de Origine de la Qualité. Yes. Ish. Ish. Uh, and also acronym I-N-A-O. Yes. Um, they, they, they're the regulatory group that controls the quality and the branding of agricultural products like cheeses and wines over in France. So for a champagne to be labeled champagne, it has to be produced, both the grapes and the process, in the champagne region from one or a blend of just three types of grape varietals. Yep. Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Pinot Meunier. And then there are a whole bunch of different rules about how you're allowed to handle the grapes, um, how they can be planted and pruned, how much fruit can be produced per acre or hectare, and how much juice can be obtained from the fruit by the weight, and how it can be fermented and stored. And the, the, the process of making it uh, in, in this correct way is called the uh, méthode champenois, Mm-hmm. Yes. Or the méthode classique or the uh, méthode classico. 
basically what goes what goes into this technique is you produce bottles of still wine that have undergone a primary fermentation, right? A- AKA turning grape juice into wine juice. Yes. You've added sugar and yeast to grape juice, um, uh, grape juice being called must in the industry in these giant tanks and yeast being a microscopic organism that eats glucose and excretes carbon dioxide and ethanol, um, starts turning the sugar and the natural sugars in the juice into alcohol. Yay. Um, mm-hmm. the, the carbon dioxide is released from that liquid as a gas and the ethanol is the alcohol that is in the final product of the wine. Um, apparently we, we talked to some, to some people at a winery and they said that so much carbon dioxide is released from the tanks when they're doing this, that they, they can't just like open up the brewery door or the winery door and like go in in the morning. Yeah. They have to vent the entire building first or else, or else anyone who walked in there would suffocate. Yeah. Which is nuts. Which is so, I did, winemaking is terrifying. Yeah, it kind of is. <laughs> There's a lot of dangers that I did not realize, especially with sparkling wine. Oh yeah. Um. So so yeah. So so once once you've got this, uh, once the yeast is done its work and the pH level hits a certain point on on, on the acid end of the scale, you strain out the yeast and you bottle the wine. That's where you would stop. If normally, you, yeah. If you were creating a still wine, if but if you're a crazy person and you're like, hey, how can I make this more hazardous? Hmm. And I know. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do that fermentation thing again. Yes, it's a secondary fermentation. Um, so, so you create a secondary fermentation inside each bottle by adding a little bit more yeast and sugar. And where the carbon dioxide was a byproduct in that primary fermentation, it's basically the point of the secondary fermentation. To keep all of that happening in the bottles, you seal them up tightly with a crown cap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Same kind of beer. Exactly. Uses. And after a couple months, when the winemaker feels like it's good and sparkly, the caps are removed. And uh, the 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 yeast is the the, the lees they're called mm-hmm. are taken out in a process called called riddling or <laughs> I just looked at that French word and looked at Annie and skipped right over it. I love it. <laughs> More on that one later. I think that's your favorite part of this entire thing. Yeah, I got really excited reading about it. Um, <laughs> also, I just like riddling. That sounds so. <laughs> like a evil villain, like a, like Riddle be this. That kind of, <laughs> yeah, it's also it's also the opposite of like what I would want to do. Like I, I, it's such a science, and I want everything about it to be the most sciency. Like let let us not, in fact, riddle in the champagne world. This is that's <laughs> that, that, that way lies danger. Um, <laughs> I say riddle all the time, baby. <laughs> And then, and then comes the dosage. Um, yes. The next step in the process is uh, once you've got those that that nasty <laughs> yeast stuff out of the bottle. It does look gross. It it's look, looks real gross. Um, uh, each bottle is topped up with a little bit more still wine and usually a little bit of sugar to taste. And then, in the most terrifying part of the process, these giant corks, like like almost twice as big as a normal wine cork, are inserted into the neck of the bottle and then backed up by a, a wire cage cap called a, a musele. You need the musele to to hold in these now highly pressurized contents. We're talking five to seven times the pressure we experience just hanging out on sea level, aka five to seven atmospheres. This is also, I hear it very frequently described as um, three times the pressure in a bus tire. Ooh. In one bottle. I don't have 
I don't have a really strong concept of bus tires, but that sounds very well, pressurized. A I, blowout of a bus tire is pretty serious. It's frightening enough. Yeah, it's it, like being inside the bottle would be like diving 50 to 70 meters down into the ocean, which for those of you who don't think in meters like me, that's about 160 to 230 feet I did not just do that math in my head. I looked it up earlier. Um, but that's also known as like the depth at which you don't generally want to dive to no. because the nitrogen in your blood starts dissolving and it can be hazardous. So don't dive into a champagne bottle. Lesson of the podcast. <laughs> I'm glad you said it. <laughs> <laughs> and that is not all. For these bottles, they, the, the, the final, the final product, once it has been wrapped up, has to be aged for at least 15 months. Um, that's for, for a typical blended champagne, or at least three years for a single vintage, just when they're really good and fancy. Also called cuvee. It also has to have a minimum alcohol content. But basically, all wines made by the Méthode Champenois exceed in quality these kind of things. That it's just sort of like a ground level, like, hey guys, like if we're we're keeping it nice, sort of a reputation. Yeah, yeah, and that's the that's the entire point of these of these regulations. So that you know, if if someone buys a bottle that is labeled champagne, they will know what to expect from it. Right. And part of why they want to set that expectation like that and, and, and keep it is because of this amazing history of champagne. There's so many legends about how champagne came to be. And we will get into talking about those right after this word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Uh, so let's talk about some of these legends of how champagne came to be. One of them is that um, Dom Perignon, a, a monk, did I say that anywhere near correctly? You, you grimaced. I did, but not because of your pronunciation. Perfect. And the taste <laughs> is also fine. Don't. That wasn't why I was grimacing. <laughs> <laughs> Dom Perignon uh, invented champagne and that that is why his name is on some bottles and why those bottles are expensive ones. But that's probably not that's probably not what happened. Um, that's almost in fact, that's definitely not what happened. It's almost the opposite of what happened in a weird way. <laughs> yes. Getting into that in a second. But um, first of all, just just to lay out like no one invented champagne on purpose when, like, the first time that someone drank a sparkling wine. Um, nope. The first sparkling wines were probably accidental. Yeah, very probably. Wine industry representatives from Limoux region claim that... <laughs> I'm sorry I did that. Anyway, they claim... <laughs> <laughs> they claim that they were producing a bubbly as early as the mid-1500s. But this is another thing that is difficult to prove. Uh, history can be tricky in that way. Absolutely. I, I have such mad respect for our coworkers on the Stuff You Missed in History podcast. This is, yes. I mean, I'm, I'm used to talking about like technology in the future, which has the benefit of all existing on the internet. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is a little bit more difficult. According to the internet, uh, the first sparkling wines probably came from England. Um, it, the first records we have of it anyway. In 1662, an English scientist named Christopher Merritt one or possibly two teas. No one knows. See? How tricky. <laughs> <laughs> the mysteries of history. Mr. Merritt, one or two teas, presented a paper to the Royal Society about how some wine humans of the time were adding sugar or molasses to finished wine barrels to create a second fermentation, da da da, da and thus bubbles. Ciders were very popular in England at the time, and that's how they were made, using this same kind of process. And that first time we have a real record a historical record of making sparkling wines on purpose. Because like we said earlier, a lot of times it was an accident and a terrifying one. Yeah. What the monk, uh, uh, Dom Perignon, uh, Pierre Perignon, who became Dom Perignon, uh, what he was doing was not creating champagne. He was assigned to stop champagne from happening, a sparkling wine from, from happening. Um, it was it was called at the time Le Vin du Diable. The Devil's Wine. 
Um, because the, the temperatures in the Champagne region would get cold enough early enough that cellared, bottled, still wine would stop fermenting in winter before the yeast was done doing all of its yeast thing. And then when the when the temperatures warmed up again in the spring, the wine would undergo that secondary fermentation, which would dramatically raise the pressure inside the bottles and make them go fizzy and make them explode. Yeah. And this was a, like, really big, scary problem. The workers, when they would go down into the cellar, they had to wear heavy iron masks and padding. That's how likely this possibility of explosion was. And according to some things we found, uh, it could, you could lose four to 10%. Like, like regularly. Yeah. Uh, due to bursting or exploding more dramatically. And that if there was a bad warm front, you could lose up to 30 to 40 percent. And according to others, you could lose a lot, like a majority of your cellar. Again, history, difficult. Historical numbers are hard, but but certainly like a single bottle going off in a cellar could start a chain reaction around the whole rest of the cellar. And, oh, man, that's I don't want that. Yeah. That sounds bad. Um. And we put on armor to go down there. <laughs> the devil's wine. No. <laughs> um, and, and, and this is what the dude was working on. He never really worked it out, but he did a couple other cool things, uh, which we'll mention later on. And the things that did sort it out were w- one of them was back in Britain again. Uh, a couple of dudes in Britain by the names of Sir Robert Mansell and James Howell worked out how to make glass with uh, relatively super hot coal-fueled furnaces by about 1623. That was pretty amazing because traditionally charcoal was the like safer, cooler fuel of choice for, for firing up glass ovens. But charcoal was commonly produced from oak trees at the time, and King James I and his navy needed a whole lot of oak for ships. So... Thanks, King James. Without you, we might not have had techno- technological improvements in glassware, and we wouldn't have been able to create these these thicker, um, stronger bottles that uh, don't explode so easy. I thought you were being sarcastic at first, like, thanks, King James. <laughs> no. But now you're serious, and as you should be. I, uh, thanks, King James. Thanks, King James. For um, that. Just my sarcasm voice is really close to my regular voice. Yeah. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> the, the other improvement that came along was um, the wire cap, that, that muselet. Yes. Um, because before it was invented, corks were held in with, like, string. I, I mean, like, really, really tight woven sure. string. But still, uh, yeah, around 1844, a member of the... Oh, I looked this one up and I don't remember. A member of the... Jacquesson. That's totally it. Is it? It is. Ooh. Which are the owners of a famous house in Champagne or a Champagne house, a a organization of growers and producers. Is that about the <laughs> definition of Champagne house? Yes. Cool. I will take it. Excellent. This dude, um, Adolf, uh, patented a cap that was held on by a strong wire that, that hooks down under the, the lip of a bottle and secures the cork, which, if you've ever opened a bottle of sparkling wine, is probably something that you're familiar with. Yeah, we still use this to this day. And the thicker glass. These are the two things, like the main two things, that help stop all those exploding bottles. And And once we stopped all those exploding bottles... Uh, 
a bunch of other innovations would come along that would make champagne a lot um a lot easier and less expensive to produce. Here we get to one of my favorite things. Riddling. That riddling. During the secondary fermentation, dead yeast build up in the bottom of the bottle, and it was, like, gross looking. To get rid of all this gross yeasty stuff, they used to pour the champagne from bottle to bottle. Along comes Barbe-Nicole Ponsardin. Barbe-Nicole was born in the years leading up to the French Revolution, and she married Francois Clicquot, which some of you may recognize the name. If you don't, there'll be a nice surprise ending at the end of this story for you. At first, this was kind of a business deal, as a lot of marriages were at the time. Sure. Uh, but they did make the lovely transformation to a real partnership. Aww. They invested in a sparkling wine, partly because Barb Nicole had some knowledge of it. But unfortunately, Francois fell ill and died suddenly. Oh, no. There were rumors that his death was due to his failing investment in wine. Oh. But Barb Nicole was not willing to give up on this. So she went to her father-in-law and asked to put her inheritance in the wine business. And the father-in-law agreed. She went through an apprenticeship. She was really determined to figure this thing out and to make this successful. The money thing kept coming up. She had asked for more money. She was about to go bankrupt. It's also, they, they were getting together in the years leading up to the French Revolution. So so this was, this was the end of the Napoleonic Wars by this time. Yes. And there were a lot of obviously difficulties in trade because of that. Barbicol had a sense that the Russian market would be really receptive to having some champagne at the end of the wars. But those blockades we were talking about, they were in the way. She was able to smuggle some of it to Amsterdam. And after the war, it did make its way to Russia, where Tsar Alexander I told the world it was all he would drink. She went from a nobody to a someone everyone knew and a someone everyone knew and wanted her product. Wow. And none of this has to do with yeast yet. No, I know. <laughs> See how exciting riddling is? Everyone else is like, my God, finish this story. <laughs> All right, here we go. Demand for her champagne was so high, she had to come up with a better way to manufacture it. Instead of pouring the champagne from bottle to bottle and losing its bubbles, the thing everybody wants in the sparkling wine, right? Barb Nicole invented a method of turning the bottle upside down. And letting the stuff settle. All the yeast settled in the neck. And this allowed her to produce better champagne much faster because she wasn't losing all the bubbles. And she didn't have to wait around for the yeast. For the yeast to settle so much. Yep. By the time she died, Vive Clicquot was enjoyed worldwide. And it is still enjoyed today. Yes. If, if you guys are not familiar with the brand name out loud, it's it's that bright yellow rectangular label that's... That's sometimes seen on champagne that I don't purchase because it's very expensive. <laughs> I hope to one day have a taste of Vouve Clicquot. I, you know, I think it's good to dream. It is. We're it's getting good there. good to have goals. Yeah. And these days, riddling is even easier yet. Um, and that's because of the invention of encapsulated yeast, which settle down into the neck of a bottle in a matter of seconds rather than a matter of, like, days. Um and also by by using machines to quick freeze. I said quick in, in little air quotes that you can't see because you're not in the studio with us. Mm-hmm. Um, Annie enjoyed them very yes, much, I can tell. and I can attest she did do it. <laughs> uh, to, to quick freeze in, in a matter of like 12 minutes, the, the lees in the, in the bottle's necks so that they could just sort of ploop right out. Yeah. Uh, when you when you take off that crown cap. And there is some shade that... Uh 
some champagne houses throw up people who use encapsulated yeast. Oh, really? All the older, more traditional houses claim that they don't use it. They, oh. And they might not use it. But a lot of people who do use it claim that the old traditional houses are lying and they only have a, like the old timey riddling equipment out front at, like for show. Wow. As with most of these kind of uh, very controlled very niche markets. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of stories about um, who's doing it right and who's doing it better and what it means to actually make the thing. Uh, so I don't know. I, I couldn't find anything either way. This is just all in the rumor mill. The oh, champagne. no, I, I love I love a champagne rumor mill. Best mm-hmm. kind of rumor mill, right? It's one of the best. It's up there. So riddling, um, which was the point of that of that story. Um, yeah. <laughs> was uh, very useful for for champagne houses to be able to produce more and also as it turned out really helped to make to, to, to make champagne the the celebratory thing that it has become because of that Russian Czar thing and uh, getting it out to more people to be able to celebrate with it it's it's up there it's what you do you hit ships with it you you, you cheers with it at your wedding it's in a lot of rap songs it's in so many rap songs. Uh, how, how did that happen? It Is- happened with coronations, royal coronations, uh, going all the way back to 496 CE, Clovis, King Clovis of Northern France promised his wife, who was a princess from Burgundy, that he'd convert to Christianity if he won his next battle. That's not a betting matter for most people, but okay, sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Clovis. So lucky for him, I guess, and his wife, he won and he was baptized in the Champagne region. And Champagne's capital, Reims, became viewed as a religious and spiritual center in France. Skipping ahead a couple of hundred years to 987 CE, Hugh Capet's coronation kickstarted a tradition that lasted centuries of kings being coronated in Champagne. It was quite the journey from Paris. It was a it was a real trick, a wine trick. Yes. Once they were out there, they were like, "Let's chill for a while and maybe drink some of these Champagne wines." Right, because if you spend all that time getting out there, might as well enjoy what the region has to offer. Sure. Although th- that they weren't producing sparkling wines on purpose at the time. No, we should say that. They were still and often like reddish. Like kind of not dull. good from what I've heard. Yeah, they weren't very good. They were flat, flabby. Flabby. Yeah. That's that's a word. It is a word. And it's a word that, to use to describe wine. What's a flabby wine? It just has nothing going on. Oh, I see. Okay. Other historical note on uh, uh, Champagne's rise to the success that it is has something to do with healthcare. Yes, and this is one of my favorite things that I found. 1674's The Art of Healing heralded Champagne's wines as those that would, quote, least encumber the stomach. Encumber the stomach. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sounds so appetizing. It does. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to encumber my stomach. Okay. It was common practice at the time for the king's physician, not just in France, but in countries all around Europe, to recommend a specific wine for purported health benefits. And this trickled down to the aristocracy, writers, poets, artists. Yeah. It was a big deal to be like the recommended wine of the king. Because we're going to drink a lot of wine. Yeah. If this one's healthier... Might as well drink even more. The king has given it his seal. (laughs) 
Champagne was the most frequently prescribed. This did not sit well with the local winemaking rival region of Burgundy. Ah, right. Yes, and a lot of you have probably heard of Burgundy wines. Mm -hmm. Still a thing. Wanting to cash in on Champagne's success, they began espousing the health benefits of their wine and hiring physicians and artists and poets and authors to talk about their wine and the health benefits of it. So we're talking about bribery. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They were bribing uh, medical students, doctors. There are hilarious fake ads that you can find. And and all. OK, so so it's not just that this wine is more healthy. It's that it has actual health benefits. Yes. Like, like what would this wine do for you? I'm glad you asked. This wine could be used <laughs> to treat gout, anemia, indigestion, kidney stones, epidemic disease, morning sickness, and malaria. Oh, malaria. Yeah. Oh, that's Just great. Just have a glass of champagne. That malaria will clear right up. That's terrific health advice. Champagne pretty much won in this battle of the finest, healthiest wine to drink, <laughs> according to the king. Burgundy decided to focus, shift their focus to their largely regarded as superior red wines. They had a clearer flavor. They had a better color. Mm-hmm. And this was... Mostly due to temperature and the soil. Champagne decided to focus solely on white wines. And that's one of the reasons we have the champagne we know as champagne today. Helping along with that, one of those things that our dear friend uh, Dom Perignon did was develop a successful technique for making and blending and uh, clarifying white wine from red grapes. Yeah. Because two two of those two of those grapes that are the primary ones that go into champagne are uh, red red grapes. Another reason that champagne came to be associated with uh, royalty aristocracy and thus kind of celebration is because of where champagne is located. It's on a trade and military route. This meant that there were a lot of soldiers going through, and they were either looking to celebrate victory or drink away their sorrow at their loss. And Napoleon himself is rumored to have said, Champagne, exclamation point. In victory, one deserves it. In defeat, one needs it. Ah, that was a terrible... I should have used that opportunity to try a Napoleon (laughs) impersonation, but it's probably best for everyone that I did not. Yeah, and we we, we have no way of going back now, so we must must forge proudly ahead. (laughs) If only I had a glass of champagne to drink away my disappointment. In the fact that we can't go backwards. I know. It's going to be okay, Annie. And one of the reasons that it's going to be okay is that thanks to all of that industrialization that I believe we mentioned earlier, uh, champagne became more and more accessible to more and more not monarchs. The common people mm-hmm. uh, began to be able to afford to drink it, you know, maybe not every day, but for um, for, for special occasions like, like weddings and New Year's. And marketing is probably one of the biggest reasons for this, although they obviously wanted you to drink it all the time. They knew that this wasn't a thing most people could afford. So they advertised it as an aspirational drink. And advertisements promised things like uh, drinking champagne would enhance women's beauty and men's wit. Oh, well, those are the two most important things for those groups of people. So that's that's a huge relief. And since more people were able to buy it for these special occasions, that's how it became kind of the 
the drink you had to toast at weddings and what you had to ring in the new year. To the point that in 1999, 327 million bottles were shipped from Champagne in anticipation of the new millennium. Ah. Yes. But one thing that Lauren and I heard from the people we talked to about this is that it is not like that in Champagne at all. Yeah, it's just a... It's, it's just a wine you it's drink. It's just wine that you drink because you like it. Yes. I also read on the other end of that, that some people think it's the bubbles and the popping of the cork like adds this feeling of celebration and that the bubbles are kind of the happiness, the excitement you feel about whatever you're celebrating. Yeah, the, 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 the joy. They're so joyful. They're joyful yeah. in your nose. Yeah. And there is that like ceremony to it. Yeah. Oh, and there is that other ceremony that involves breaking them open with a sword because that's the same thing to do. Obviously. Yeah. Uh, sabrage. Um, and it's not, it's not cutting. It is, it is breaking, uh, with a dull edge. It turns out that, that it's not the sharpness of the sword at all. It's, it's, you can use anything. You can use like a lighter or like a stapler. Your cell phone, maybe that would be a poor decision. But, uh. You could argue that the saber is a poor decision. It's, it's still terrifying. And we have footage sure. to prove it. I will say that my, my heart sped up a bit when the <laughs> saber was pulled out of its very ceremonial looking box. Yeah, yeah. We we got to talk to a to a master sabreur, Harry Constantinescu. I came to find out that there's a certain window where you can safely perform sabrage. First of all the temperature is very important. The point where you hit the bottle, it's also very important. Every bottle will have two seams. One seam on one side, one on the other side, and then there's a glass lip where the bottle is closed. So the point where you want to hit it, it's where the seam meets this glass lip. This is where you want to hit it in order to have a clean cut. They used the capital of Champagne to crown the kings of France. Napoleon himself went to military school close to that region, and this is where he met with Rémy Moet, which later will take over the Moet Chandon house, and he would stop with his generals prior to a battle in the Champagne region, just celebrate with Champagne. And the young officer from Napoleon's army, frustrated with the fact that he couldn't control his horse with one hand and open a bottle of Champagne with the other one after a night of party, he pulled his sword and beheaded the bottle with a stroke of a blade. Everybody thought that this is a great way to open a bottle of Champagne. Did you did you ever catch back up with Harry? You, you said that you were going to try to go get him to teach you how to do this. <laughs> that is a work in progress. I actually, thanks to this episode, just overcame my fear of opening champagne bottles. Lauren taught me the proper way to open it. Opening a bottle of champagne is quite easy. You just uh, you just kind of grab the put put a towel over the bottle and grab the cork and sort of wiggle it until it just comes out. Yeah, my previous method was closing my eyes and going outside and pointing it away and just <laughs> hoping. <laughs> And nothing went wrong. <laughs> you don't have to. You don't have to live that uh, life anymore, it's Annie. True. And now, apparently, opening like a regular person for me is not enough anymore. Because yes, I am in talks with Master Brewer Harry about maybe learning to do it with all kind. I mean, he was listing all kinds of objects you could do it with. Maybe we'll have an update. Hopefully, a positive one <laughs> in the future. <laughs> <laughs> he he did say that there was that there was only a a, a very low chance. Was it like one percent? His personal example was he once did a hundred bottles oh, okay. in one sitting is not the right word, but in one go, in one go, uh-huh. and only two of them 
Okay, so 2%. Yeah. If you're a master Sabor. Yes. And you're dealing with the best champagne bottles. Yes. You received an honorary knighthood for this, y'all. It's it's really fascinating. Um, but let us let us move on and debunk some myths about champagne, because along the way of becoming this cultural institution, there have been a whole lot of things out there. There's a whole lot of misinformation out there. What do you do with it? How is it best? We'll get into some of those right after the second break from our lovely sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach! Give me great food. Tacos! Give me adventure. Hiking! Give me a date night. Sunset cruise! Give me some smiles. Cheese! Give me more beaches. Beaches! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And 
we're back. So, hey, Annie. Yeah. Champagne. Should you age it? The answer depends on the vintage. Okay. I, I mean, that's the, that's what I read most places. If you're asking me, the answer is no. But that's because <laughs> I can't afford vintage wine and I'm impatient. For people like you and me, Lauren, uh, we don't have the fancy wine cellars to age it in. I hear that properly aged wine, vintage sparkling wine, uh, is amazing. So, yeah, if you have the opportunity... Don't turn it down. <laughs> Do it. Okay, other myth. If you if you put a silver spoon in the bottleneck mm-hmm. of an open bottle of sparkling wine, will it preserve the bubbles? Short answer? No. More ambiguous answer? Meh, maybe. <laughs> the longer answer is this also seems to depend on taste and just a lot of other factors. What really? This is one that I was sure had to have been complete like 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 how would that work? I know. That I, sounds ridiculous. I know. Um I read somewhere why people thought that was and I forgot it of course, but researchers at Stanford University and the Interprofessional Committee of Champagne, CVIC, tested this out by measuring the pressure of open bottles some that had spoons in them, some that had those wine stoppers in them, mm-hmm. and some where they were recorked with the cork, and others completely open. And they found that the pressure in all the bottles was relatively the same. They also did taste tests with these different types mm-hmm. of bottles, and it, it seemed to just vary wildly. <laughs> the most important factor they found was temperature in preserving bubbles. Next myth. Does glass shape matter? This is another one where, depending on who you ask, you might get a different answer. Okay, yes. The glass, the shape of a glass that you put a sparkling wine into will matter. But what glass type you use will depend on what you're looking to get out of it. The bubbles in champagne are are created by, uh, or, or they're seeded off of imperfections in the glass, either uh, little little bits of dust or whatever, or if there's a little flaw in the glass, then then bubbles will, will nucleate there. And uh, and fly up to the surface of the wine. Lauren is doing excellent hand gestures right now. All <laughs> all again to the waist. I'm just gesturing harder uh, of of all of y'all at home. Um, but uh, according to Uncorked, the science of champagne, these bubbles form at a rate of thirty per second, meaning that each glass contains about two million bubbles if you just let it hang out until it goes totally flat. Which you shouldn't do. You should just drink it. No. Yeah. So those, those those bubbles aren't going to last very long in most glass shapes because uh, because because they're they're going places. But certain types of glasses will keep those bubbles going longer. Um, and the flute glasses have been traditionally used because they will keep those bubbles just going and going, and they'll really showcase how elegant and beautiful and joyful they are. It'll also keep it cool a little bit longer, which, as we said above, helps with the bubbles staying bubblier. Yes. So a flute glass is kind of more for looks, mm-hmm. kind of aesthetic. Because as it turns out, the narrow uh, uh, mouth opening of a flute glass prevents you from, from getting your getting your nose all up in it. So you're going to be missing out on that perfume of the wine. Wines, um, as, as many fancy people will tell you, have a, a kind of separate smell component and taste component. And you're denying yourself the beauty of that smell if you use a flute. So some people who are serious about sparkling wine 
like just never drink it out of a flute. I drink mine out of a jam jar. I drink mine out of a mason jar because I can see in ounces how much is in there. Right. Mm-hmm. Let's see. This is very practical advice. Uh, <laughs> less less fancy, perhaps, than like a coupe glass, which are also popular for champagne. Um, th- those are those. If you've never seen one before or heard them referred to, they're those little short, wide cups that are said to be based on the shape of Marie Antoinette's left breast as a gift for Louis the Fourteenth, which experts say is probably apocryphal. Um, they, they are super cute, and they're really good for the wine's smell, but terrible at keeping bubbly, cool, and, you know, bubbly. So generally not recommended unless you just like it and then do it. Um, at tastings, you might be poured sparkling wines in a white wine glass, which are bad for the bubbles, but good for the, the temperature and the nose. And some glassmakers have recently been touting these tall tulip-shaped flutes as being the best for bubbly because they're 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 cool and they showcase the bubbles um but they have a little bit more room for your schnoz up there at the top of the glass so basically the myth is and you should drink out of whatever you like to drink out of yeah pretty much yeah also while we're debunking myths dom pernon probably didn't say come quickly i'm tasting the stars but speaking of taste. Oh, yes. So champagne. What does it taste like? I did not know until recently. I'll admit it can it. it can taste like a number of different things, obviously, yes. uh, that, you know, not not all champagne is the same. And certainly all sparkling wine is not the same. But like all wine, um, the, the terroir, the climate and soil type and uh, and whether you're using oak barrels or steel barrels, uh, the farming technique, the germs that are floating around in the region, all of that have to do with the final taste of the wine. One of the reasons champagne's champagne has such a specific taste is largely due to its terroir and specifically the soil aspect of it because champagne has... The the region, not the... Yeah. yeah. Clarity. Champagne, the region, has a lot of limestone in its soil and the sedimentary rock in the area is a mix of limestone marl, and chalk. And these are excellent reservoirs of water. They're great for draining. And it also adds a minerally flavor to the ah, champagne. That is a thing that, I, that I've noticed in our recent champagne adventures, that yes, the whole two kinds that I've tried now mm-hmm. both did have a have a very dirt kind of component. In the best way. In, the, in a lovely sure. way. In a terrific way. <laughs> in a way that I enjoyed. I love I love a flavor. Any any flavor will do. <laughs> Champagne is also or sparkling wine in general is I should say is is known for being sweeter than a lot of still wines. And this doesn't necessarily have to be true, but um it frequently is due to that dosage that you that you add in uh towards towards the end of the bottling process there to kind of even out the flavor of the wine and fill it back fill the bottle back up after you've taken out all of the the dirty yeast stuff. It's not dirty. It's a perfectly clean and natural process. <laughs> and if, if you if you like drier champagne um, or sparkling wine, uh, the thing is to look for the extra brute. Dry usually means not sweet in the wine world, but extra dry sparkling wine is sweeter than brute and extra brute. I'm not sure why. They want to make sure you did your research. They, like me personally, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, uh, going from the driest, the, the least sweet mm-hmm. to the most sweet, 
if, if, if just just if you're looking for it, y'all, um, uh, go, go for the the, the dry is an extra brute, then brute, then extra dry, then sec, then demi sec, then do, mm-hmm. which means sweet. Yeah, that they add fifty grams of sugar to a bottle of do. Yeah. And this is something else that I found very interesting. Champagne used to be way, way sweeter. Oh yeah, like, like dessert wine level, like, like Porto kind of level sweet. Yes. And it's actually the English. They, they played a larger role in sparkling wine and champagne than I realized. They preferred this dry, aka brute, champagne sparkling wine. And once that whole industrialization thing happened and France could export more, the Champagne region could export more. They made a version specifically for the English. Oh, mm-hmm. well, thank you, England. Yeah. And it was that extra brute, brute version most of us know today. But Champagne used to be very sweet. Yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah. This, Annie, Annie just made a shudder and I was like, oh, yep. Nope. I'm right there with you. Um, and as we've said before, in order to preserve those bubbles, you, you want champagne to be properly chilled. And that properly chilled is between 45 and 48 degrees Fahrenheit, which is so specific. Mm-hmm. Who came up with this? I love it. Uh, which is about seven to nine degrees Celsius. Yes. And according to the things I read, rapid chilling is the way to go. Not in a freezer. Terrible for flavor, but uh, experts recommend putting champagne in ice water for 15 to 20 minutes and then refrigerating for three to four hours. This seems to be the consensus, but again, a lot of preference involved, I think. Sure. Yeah. I'd, that's that's basically what all of this comes down to, is is, is do do what you like. Although for sure, um, after, after you've opened a bottle of champagne, there's a time limit on when it's the most enjoyable. Immediately. Within within 24 hours is best. I mean, the bubbles are probably going to go away before then, but... Yes, that's something I can get behind. Yeah, quickly. And speaking of something else I can get behind. Yes. Food. Yes! And pairing your champagne or sparkling wine with delicious treats. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be... I, I feel like uh, uh, champagne is frequently served like during a dessert course in yeah. America, and I'm not sure... Why we do that? Because I mean, I mean, not that it can't be lovely, but yeah, absolutely. But with the sweetness of of the wine, sometimes it can be. It's nice to have a little bit of sweet and savory combination. Um, sparkling wines pair very well with cheeses. Mm-hmm. Uh, cheese, by the way, legit improves the taste of wine according to science. Something about how the cheese affects the tannins in in the wine mm. and kind of smooths out a wine that's maybe not as good. So if you get that two buck chuck, then uh, pair it with some cheese for sure. Um, but other stuff, uh, foie gras, uh-huh. raw oysters, Oof. sushi and other seafood. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Harry specifically recommended scallops. Yes. Uh-huh. And uh, stuffed mushrooms. Mm. If you are going to go for dessert, um, you found some specific recommendations for, for types of dessert to pair champagne with? I did. Uh, I think it's kind of the things that a lot of people would expect, like strawberries, tarts, crumbles, shortbread, kind of the lighter, breadier baked goods, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. No, but bready makes sense because champagne, yeah. um, does have, or some, some kinds of it do have a very like yeasty mm-hmm. kind of note to them. But again, but basically everyone that we talked to who's a professional in the sparkling wine industry recommended eating whatever you want. 
Yeah. Specifically the, the winery that we went to in North Georgia, because there are wineries in North Georgia. Mm-hmm. There's wine in them, they're hills. Even the cups say that. We're that, not making that up. Yeah, no, that is an actual <laughs> slogan of the region. I love living in Georgia. Um, uh, the, the lady there recommended specifically fried chicken. Which we are determined to try. Yes. Before we totally wrap up, I wanted to just give a shout out to, to some of these places that have been instrumental around Atlanta in helping us produce this episode and the interviews that they've done with us. And, uh, they've been so welcoming giving Harry Constantinescu, uh, Three Sisters Winery in Dahlonega, Yona Mountain Winery out in Cleveland, Murphy's here in Atlanta. Is there anything else before we, before we sign off? I would just like to say I'm very sorry we didn't get to touch on all the ship related history. With champagne. As it turns out, bottles of champagne are, can be well preserved on shipwrecks for like hundreds of years. And yep. due to a lot of that smuggling that was happening at various times during like war torn France, that's absolutely a thing that just sometimes people are like, oh, look, another shipwreck with another hundred bottles of this incredible vintage of champagne. It's a wonderful world we're living in. <laughs> um, Thank, thank you guys so much for tuning in and listening. And, uh, maybe, maybe we'll in the future get a chance to talk, to do another episode and, and talk about some of those ship related things. Um, <laughs> I would love that. And also, if you're interested in seeing what Sabraj looks like and or Lauren and I trying sparkling wine with fried chicken, we also have a video component to this. Yeah. So please check it out. It's going to be awesome. Do you have a sign-off line? I wish I did. Now that you ask me, I feel like I should have thought about this long and hard. But instead, <laughs> I didn't. Wait. And now we're in this situation. <laughs> so cheers. Cheers. On our first episode, cheers to you for listening. Hopefully many more good things are coming your way. is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach! Give me great food. Tacos! Give me adventure. Hiking! Give me a date night. Sunset cruise! Give me some smiles. Cheese! Give me more beaches. Beaches! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really needs your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net.